Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And we do apologize for getting this episode out a little bit late. Um, Just because y'all don't know, I do have a real world job. And right now we're in just in the thick of carnival season. And this last week took more out of me than I anticipated. Yeah, and, and the uh, the move and, uh, you know, taking care of little things that were left over uh, involving the move just uh, took quite a bit out of me, too. Yes, and we are still living amongst boxes of chaos, unpacking chaos right now. Yep, yes. Keep, keeping us quite busy. Very much so. And we also ask that you bear with us for just one more hiatus. Let me get through Mardi Gras because my job does involve being in the middle of the French Quarter during Mardi Gras. So just so you know, even though we're releasing this episode on Sunday, our next episode is going to be on March the 2nd. Yep, it doesn't get any busier for service industry people than the French Quarter week of Mardi Gras. It That is so true. However, dear listeners, if you want to help save me from this particular life, uh, if you guys would be so kind as to tell your friends and tell your enemies, especially your enemies about this podcast and, you know, get us some more listeners and, uh, you know, maybe the income from this podcast could be raised enough to where I could just make this my full time job. That would be so awesome. That would be quite the dream. It really would be. But, you know, we do want to thank you all for listening to us and for spending time with us every week. We so appreciate that you make us part of your lives. We really enjoy having you with us. Of course, always ratings and reviews on your preferred podcasting platform are appreciated. And we, if you're not subscribed to us, why the heck aren't you? It costs you nothing to press that button and make sure that you're subscribed to us. So you're not missing any episodes. And of course we are on YouTube and Brian, I wanted to start something kind of new, uh, wherein every episode we talk a little bit about current events uh, as you know, I've been obsessively following the University of Idaho killings, and I was impressed that the law enforcement caught the person so quickly. Yes, that was uh, <clears throat> that was a very challenging case. Yes, and I've watched a, a, a few of mm-hmm. my favorite YouTube true crime people who have done deep dives into it, and they explained how they caught... Brian Cohenberger, who is a criminal justice major, uh, he was getting a PhD in criminal justice, and his motive was that he wanted to see how people would react. Mm. I have a criminal justice degree too. My name's also Brian, and uh, but your last name is not Cohenberger. Uh, yes, fortunately, <laughs> and not. you're They're definitely not a jail someone right else now. who's who's disgraced, uh, uh, disgraced my name. Besides that, there was the uh, the gentleman, or if you call him that. Who ran over Stephen King <laughs> with my same first and last name? 
Oh yes, yes. yeah. <laughs> and 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 you did and you did when you were younger. You looked like Timothy McVeigh, so there's that too. Yeah, and, he, and even worse, uh, I, I was still serving in the reserve shot of the Marine Corps at the time. So yes, I had the haircut. And at the time, I was working at the uh, the blood bank, and doing logistics work, and uh, I was I was te- I was teased about that. People were calling me McVeigh, and you know I didn't find it to be very funny at the time, uh, because of course I was at the at the time I was fearing, uh, you know, certain things changing. In, in response to that. So, you know, I didn't appreciate being confused with a, uh, a white supremacist uh, terrorist. Right, right. Even though he also served in Desert Storm. Well, anyways, this, uh, the, the, the Brian, that is not you. His motive for committing that crime was that he wanted to see how people would react. You believe that? That's a typical psychopath. I mean, he killed four people viciously in their beds. <laughs> Psychopaths enjoy getting uh, getting attention. Mm-hmm. E- even if people, whether people know who they are or not, they love to see the media coverage of their crimes. They they really they feed off of it. They they truly enjoy it. I wonder if there's going to be a trial or if he's just going to plead guilty. If he enjoys attention, he might want a trial. He's probably going to going to uh, going to insist on going to trial mm. because he's going to get. That's how he's going to get what he wants. Now he's going to try to gain some type of notoriety, uh, and with all this, there's there's probably going to be at least one copycat. Who's mm. who's of the same, who's of the same mindset, enjoys this the same type of perverted, twisted, evil activity. I hope you're wrong about that. I really, really do. Uh, yeah, I, I wish I was. Mm. Yeah, I wish I was wrong. We we just see we see this stuff repeated. We do. And I'm not a fan of communist China, but. One thing they do, one thing they do right is they. Uh, they don't glorify their criminals. No, they don't. They they keep them, they they hide their identities from the public. The mm. identities of the of these high profile criminals from the public. Right. I wonder if we're the only country in the world that has like court TV and criminal cases because the you know I I know that there's different laws in different <laughs> countries so they don't have. A lot of the a lot of the these things are not sensationalized in other countries, but we do it here as a national pastime. Yeah, we sensationalize quite a few things. Yes, which also leads me into something else that I was recently looking at about how uh, true crime aficionados and podcasters and TikTokers and YouTubers are kind of getting into this debate of ethics. And I feel like that's an important thing to bring up right now, especially since I was talking to you earlier about that, that TikTok alleged psychic who was trying to blame the murder of these Idaho students on a professor at the University of Idaho. So now this TikToker is getting sued. So 
dear listeners, please rest assured that we here on this podcast are going to do our absolute best to not wrongly identify anybody. What I like to do is I like to wait for all the facts to come out. I like for their, I like to wait until an arrest has been made before I really even say anything. Yeah, that that's very prudent because otherwise, theoret- theoretically, you could interfere with an investigation. You could, and you could also have, <clears throat> um, you know, one of the people, the, the, the survivor in the house that those students were murdered in, okay, that surviving roommate had a lot of people piling onto her on online saying, well, why didn't you stop the the killer? Why didn't you call the police right away? La-di-da. Well, for one thing, if somebody's in your house killing other people, would you go try to stop them? Would it be that easy? Probably not. And second of all, that roommate didn't even really know what was going on. She heard noises. She wasn't even sure what was happening. Oh, she may have been killed too had she yes, had she tried she had she tried to too. investigate or even tried to stop him. Uh, one cannot assume that let's say random people you hear about in the news, random because I say random because you don't know these people, uh, have the same capabilities as you. Okay? Mm-hmm. Just like uh, what I expect her to be able to get out of bed and do the uh, Marine Corps confidence course. No, probably okay. not. No. Jump out of bed and do that or jump out of the bed and perform a Marine Corps PFT or jump out of bed and put on her gear and uh, you know deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan, for example, without any training. Okay. You know, people need to be, people need to be, be realistic. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Be realistic. Okay. Now let's, let's say someone like me had been there. Okay. Yes. I would have picked up a pistol and I would have checked to see if everything was okay. And, you know, stranger with a weapon in his hand. Uh, if it goes bye-bye. Yeah. If you're not retreating, if you're not retreating from me, when you see me point the pistol at you, um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and fire. You know, if you turn around and run, I'm, then I'm not going to fire at you. Okay. Even if you're inside the house, but that part is just me. Okay. And of course it depends on the laws in your state, state of Louisiana, for example, probably state of Texas, Mississippi as well. Oh, Texas. Uh, definitely. Yeah. If, if, if an intruder is in your house, you don't have to warn them. You don't have to give them a chance to retreat. You can just light them up. Yes. You know, uh, but, but also you know, I, your I don't response, think those students had weapons. Very, very, very unlikely. So, I mean, your response to that type of thing is going to depend upon your capabilities, okay? Keep in mind, the Constitution of the United States of America does not require you to defend yourself, okay, Mm -hmm. or even defend others. But it does, uh, well, in theory, give you the capability to do so legally, Without being prosecuted, at least that you know that's that's the theory. Of course, all this stuff gets gets tested in court periodically. You know, mm-hmm. okay. So once again, ridiculous to just expect the victim of a crime to be able to respond the exact same way as you would. 
And unless you've already been in a similar situation, demonstrated similar capability, you don't know how you're going to react. Yeah. In that situation. Yeah. I would hope that at the very least, my instinct would be to call the police. At the very least. Yes. But, you know, that's just what I can hope for. I've not been in that situation. I really hope I never am. But, dear listeners, when when things like this do happen, and it's so high profile, and everybody's just breathlessly following it and posting things, just just wait. Just sit back and wait. Just wait for the rest to happen. Wait for something to happen. Don't go blaming survivors either. Yeah, or blaming victims. Yes. Uh, But, of course, always think before you post something. Yes, always. And, you know, that I think I mentioned that, that that TikToker is getting sued by that professor. So don't post things without having facts. Yeah, it's public defamation. Yes, very much so. You can't go doing that. Now, keep in mind, it's one thing to to say on to, to complain online about professors supposedly, you know, brainwashing your daughter, your cousin or your sister or whoever it is when they go to college, okay, with a certain alleged indoctrination, okay? It's one thing to say that. that, That's an opinion, okay? But if you say say someone, a professor to college is guilty of a murder and you don't have any, any real basis for this other than the fact that they were on the campus, pretty much, um, well, I think that then that, that, that that's public defamation. Well, I think that this alleged psychic was, um, I think she was trying to make connections where there were no connections. And um, I don't even want to say her name because she's ridiculous and I'm not giving her any more publicity. But when I, I did look at a video that broke down uh, what she had done and what she had said. And it was just like, what are you even talking about? Like her website says that she, she uses like left and right brain thinking for her psychic abilities and all this just dribble, this malarkey. And it's like, you know, in the end, she's, she's another basement troll. Yes, she is another basement yeah, troll. Except, except she's a grifter. She's th- a con artist. This is worse. This, except, this is worse. This is not someone who profits by watching videos and clicks because she decides to tear up elements of pop culture, right? Okay, or say say false things about things she knows to be false about upcoming movies, and then says that it's just a rumor. This is far worse. This is this is saying. This is saying someone has committed a murder without any without any real basis for it whatsoever. Yes, and it, it can be so hard to come back from that too, even if it's not true. Your name is always going to be associated with that thing. Like people Google you, and guess what? It's going to come up. Yeah, it, it's it's not it's nothing you want to be you want to be known for. Yeah, so don't. Yeah, you really nobody should go messing with other people's lives like that. If they've actually done something, that's one thing. But this is why you should sit back and wait. Wait for an arrest to be made. Wait for information to come out. Rumors and theories and speculation don't really help anything. 
No, and and that also and on a side note, as far as her being a psychic goes, uh, that's very discrediting. Yeah. Again, uh, against her to say the least, and it shows how desperate she was, grasping at straws, trying to gain gain notoriety. Uh, I mean, it, it's really disgusting to try to gain notoriety by uh, at the expense of someone else who didn't even do anything wrong. Yes. Yes. So please, dear listeners, be better than that. Yes. Don't don't be a bottom feeding uh, basement troll. Yes, please. And yeah, be better than that. And don't blame survivors ever. Exactly. <sighs> so now that that is off my chest, because I really just had to say something about that. Are you ready to get into the episode proper? Ready. Today we're talking about Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, yes. Yes. Bonnie and Clyde, who <laughs> were known at now this period of time, which is the Depression era. Again, I just want everybody to think about how much it must have sucked. Okay, you had, you were, you were dirt poor. You had food insecurity almost every day. All right. Money was very hard to come by. Uh, you didn't have, people were out of work. Yeah, work was hard to come by too. Yes, everything was hard to come by. And... This period of time, you know, this was when newspapers were such a big deal. And this was something that was followed in the newspapers. And I can imagine if you lived in that period of time, this was probably a very exciting thing to read about and to talk about. This is what might have been the most exciting thing in some people's lives, honestly. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Very, definitely more exciting than reality TV. Which he didn't even have. He didn't even have television really back then. No. Look, you, you did have really, really good radio shows, though. Yes, you did. You did have good radio shows. And this was likely every bit as exciting mm. as, as, one of, as one of those radio shows. Except this was real. This wasn't fiction. Yeah. This wasn't a, a, a radio serial play, you know? And, you know, this was on top of the organized crime that, that derived largely from, from prohibition. Mm-hmm. Something we obviously haven't learned from, but that's a different discussion. Well, and one day we will be having that discussion on this podcast. Don't you worry. Yeah. So this, this depression era, though, was is occasionally referred to as the public <laughs> enemy era, which I really like that title, the public enemy era, Right. This is when these types of people were just blown up to be larger than life. And Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October the 1st of 1910. And Clyde Chestnut Champion Barrow was born on March the 24th of 1909. They were an American criminal couple who traveled to central United States with their gang during the Great Depression. They robbed banks, stores, and funeral homes. Funeral home. Funeral home, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, their crimes played out in the press. And between 1931 and 1934, it is believed that they murdered at least nine law enforcement officers and four civilians. Now, 
Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born in 1910 in Rowena, Texas. She was the second of three children, and her father, Charles Robert Parker, was a bricklayer who died when Bonnie was just four years old. After the loss of her, uh, after the loss of her father, her, mo- her mother, Emma, moved her family back to her parents' home in Cement City, an industrial suburb in West Dallas where she worked as a seamstress. In her second year of high school, Bonnie met Roy Thornton. The couple dropped out of school and married on September 25, 1926, six days before Bonnie's 16th birthday, which something else that was also common in this era was teenagers getting married at a very young age. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. A lot more, pre- lot more prevalent then. And during the Great Depression, this was this was a matter of necessity. Yes, it often was a matter of necessity because you were hoping for money, a little bit of a better life, anything. And it was, it was, of course, difficult to support your kids. That too, yes. Yeah. So the marriage was short. Roy was frequently absent and he had encounters with the law. They never officially divorced, but their paths never crossed again after January of 1929. Bonnie Parker was still wearing the wedding ring that Thornton had given her when she died, as a matter of fact. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Thornton was in prison when he heard of her death, and he said, I'm glad they jumped out like they did. It's much better than being caught. He was sentenced to five years for robbery in 1933, and after attempting several prison breaks, he was killed while trying to escape from Huntsville State Prison on October the 3rd of 1937. Wow. Okay, so that was her, her Bonnie Parker's husband, okay? Now, after she left Roy... Bonnie moved back in with her mother and worked as a waitress. One of her regular customers was a postal worker named Ted Hinton. And in 1932, he joined the Dallas County Sheriff's Department and he was a member of the posse that killed Bonnie and Clyde. Wow. Now, as an adult, Bonnie wrote poems such as The Story of Suicide Sal and The Trail's End. And that poem became more commonly known as the story of Bonnie and Clyde. She briefly kept a diary in 1929 when she was 18. She wrote of being lonely, her impatience with life in Dallas, but she also had a love of photography. Clyde Barrow was born in 1909 into a poor farming family in Ellis County, Texas, southeast of Dallas. He was the fifth of seven children, and his parents were Henry Basil Barrow and Kumi Talitha Walker. The family moved to Dallas in the early 1920s. The Barrows spent their first months in Dallas living under a wagon. Wow. Until they got enough money to buy a tent. Again, just very hard times. Yes, my grandmother grew up during those times, and <clears throat> quite frankly... It had the lasting effect it had on her was, you know, stuff that my sister and I were unable to read when we were kids. But as adults, we figured out the reasons why she enjoyed uh, shopping at supermarkets so much was because she was still fearing hunger. Mm. And also the reason why she liked to take my sister and I to buffets as often as she could. And she'd tell us, tell us to eat up and get her money's worth. It was that fear of starvation that never left her. And also the reason why 
like say for example if i if i eat uh, a plate of red beans and rice or a bowl of red beans and rice or jambalaya to this day whether it was my grandmother's when i was a kid or even anybody's now i'm eating it to the last grain of rice mm-hmm. yeah because do that. my grandmother imparted that upon me to eat everything on the plate and be grateful for it uh you know, because when when she when she was my same age then it was just so hard to come by right right well Clyde Barrow was first arrested in 1926 at the age of 17 uh, police were confronting him over a rental car that he had failed to return on time <laughs> yeah hmm. his second arrest was with his brother Buck. And this was for possession of stolen turkeys. Wow. Which, again, you know, you go back to this era. They, I'm not trying to say, well, this is, that it's okay to steal. But they were probably trying to get those turkeys to feed their family. Just making a point. Uh Okay. So Clyde did have some legitimate jobs during 1927 through 1929. But he also cracked safes, robbed stores, and stole cars. In January of 1930, Bonnie and Clyde met. They met at a friend's house. Uh, She was making hot chocolate in the kitchen. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that sweet? They had a meat cute over hot chocolate. Yes, they did. And they were instantly smitten with each other. She was 19 and he was 20. And they spent much time together during the following weeks until Clyde was arrested and convicted of auto theft. And that is where we're going to leave the story for the moment and take this quick break. Now, after Clyde's conviction, he was sent to East Ham Prison Farm in April of 1930. He did escape after his incarceration using a weapon that Bonnie had smuggled to him. He was recaptured and sent back to prison. And he was repeatedly sexually assaulted while in prison. And he retaliated by attacking and killing his tormentor with a pipe and crushing his skull. He got another inmate who was already serving a life sentence to claim responsibility. Ah, wow. Quite, quite, quite the charmer there. Uh, this was Clyde Barrow's first murder. And in order to avoid hard labor in the fields, he purposely had two of his toes chopped off. This was in January of 1932. Wow. Very, very intense. Yes, well, a very intense individual. Um, I also want to point out here that, you know, during this era, um, the language around sexual assault is not anywhere what it was today. And the trauma that Clyde carried through the rest of his life with this was must have been pretty deep. Because I really don't think that people ever thought it could happen to men in that era. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, in okay, so <clears throat> his mother had been working on getting him released, which he did not know. He did not know this. I mean, he, he had his toes cut off. His mother petitioned for his release successfully, and he was paroled on February the 2nd of 1932. And even though he was out of prison, people who knew him noticed changes in, in his behavior. 
His sister Marie said something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. And a fellow inmate named Ralph Foltz said that he watched Clyde change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You send the sociopath to school and they, they actually become more dangerous. Educated sociopaths can be very dangerous people. Mm, you're you are correct. Yeah. Uh -huh. After <laughs> after his release, he continued ro his robbing spree, grocery stores and gas stations, at a high rate, and he was often joined by, by Ralph Fultz. His favorite weapon was the M nineteen eighteen Browning automatic rifle, or the BAR. According to the biographer John Neal Phillips, Clyde Barrow's goal in life was not to gain fame was not to gain fame or fortune, but it was to seek revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuses that he had sustained while serving time. Mm -hmm. Well, that that BAR, by the way, Browning Automatic Weapon, uh, thirty out six. That's a deer hunting caliber, capable of penetrating anything law enforcement had, you know, used for cover back then. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why he liked it. Okay. And it was one of three of them they had that was stolen from the Missouri State uh, National Guard Armory. <clears throat> yes. Yeah, that, that, that is uh, exactly what, what happened. And in fact, his goal, uh, okay, so when he was stealing the firearms, okay, uh, he wanted to have a enough firepower to launch a raid against the Eastern Prison, which uh, it appears they it appears they had that in the car when they had been when 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 they were finally uh, when they were finally shot down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Uh, this they had they had three of those in the car with one hundred twenty round magazines ready to go plus 3,000 rounds of assorted ammunition and a bunch of other guns. Yeah. <laughs> so, more on that later. Yes, more on that later. Uh, Bonnie did join them in these robberies as well. Uh, Bonnie, on April the 19th, Bonnie Parker and Ralph Fultz were captured in a failed hardware store burglary where they were trying to steal firearms. A grand jury failed to indict Bonnie, and she was released, but Ralph Fultz would be convicted, and he did serve time. Now, keep in mind, hardware stores back then did sell, for example, Thompson machine guns. Mm -hmm. Okay, this was before the NFA, the National Firearms Act, that you know, regulating registering machine guns. Okay, but ironically, the biggest reason why, like gangsters at the time, just they didn't go to hardware shop stores to buy these Thompsons was they were very expensive. So it was cheaper to either break into National Guard armories, for example, or even these, uh, you know, even these hardware stores or even purchase these uh, military firearms illegally. Right. From members of the National Guard who are breaking the law. The time. Just two weeks later. Clyde Barrow was the getaway driver in a robbery in Hillsboro, during which a store owner named J.N. Butcher was shot and killed. His wife identified Barrow from police photographs. 
On August the 5th, Clyde Barrow, Raymond Hamilton, and Ross Dyer were drinking moonshine at a country dance in Strington, Oklahoma, when Sheriff C.G. Maxwell and Deputy Eugene C. Moore approached them in the parking lot. Barrow and Hamilton opened fire, which killed Moore and gravely wounded Maxwell. And Moore was the first law enforcement officer that Clyde Barrow and his gang killed. And they had what, what, a total of like five shootouts of law enforcement? At least, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they lived a very uh, a very fast life. In fact, when you say live fast, die young, you know that saying? Yeah. This oh, is yeah. a perfect example of living fast and dying young. It, it definitely okay. is. And, you know, some people probably based upon what they see in movies or video games might think, oh, 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 over five shootouts of law enforcement. That's a big deal. Okay. Because most criminals, when they get into a shootout with law enforcement, it's their first and last. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. generally don't, you generally don't win when you shoot it out with law enforcement. Yes. Uh, but apparently they had won a few times. Yeah. Which is part of their, part of their folk hero lore. Right. Right, but the, these people were not Robin Hood. So. No, no. But people still romanticized uh, their stories. And they, and they, and don't, don't do that. Nobody do that. That's a bad idea. Yeah, the, they, their their stories are interesting, but they're not, uh, they're not to really be admired. And you know, you remember that that thing that happened last year, where that uh, was she a a prison. Uh, the, the oh, law Lord, enforcement you, officer. Yeah, she with, was a correction. She was yeah. a corrections officer. Yeah, that that's something. Th- this is something that actually reminded me of that when I was going through uh, the information for Bonnie and Clyde. I was like, huh, kind of like that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Bad news. Bad news. Yes. W. D. Jones had been a friend of Barrow's family since childhood. He joined Bonnie and Clyde on Christmas Eve of 1932 at the age of 16, and the three left Dallas that night. The next day, the, the next day, Jones and Barrow murdered Doyle Johnson, a young family man, while stealing his car. Barrow also killed the Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis on January the 6th of 1933, when he, Parker, and Jones wandered into a police trap set for another criminal. And at this point, the gang had murdered five people. Yeah, and that's um, oftentimes murderers who were eventually brought to justice. Uh, five is is usual is like five or less is is like the career mm-hmm. of a violent criminal. Uh, but they've well, they did a bit more than that. Yes. And, you know, and I also want to point out that this is, um, you know, that there are, these are serial killers. Maybe it's not a serial killer in the way that we tend to think of serial killers, but these are serial killers. Yeah. These, these are, they have similar minds as to the two armed robbers in uh, South Florida who got into that famous FBI shootout. Oh, Ma Barker? Oh, no, no, no. This this was during the 80s. Oh. This was during the 80s. It's like, say, similar minds, okay? And it's like the, the FBI agent in charge uh, 
had even commented about them impressing the seriousness of of this uh, of this felony stop that they were attempting was, was that they you know be ready these they like to shoot right okay okay so criminals like this uh, it's not all necessity when they use their when they use their their guns to to shoot people they're they they're enjoying it body and clyde enjoyed shooting people yeah I believe okay they so that was part that was all part of it you know i'm not going out on a limb here to say that body and clyde enjoyed shooting people that they, they really did they right. didn't they did not exactly look for uh you know look for ways not to shoot right no 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 they it was it was it was all part of their 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 lifestyle you're right you're right on march the 22nd of 1933 clyde's brother buck was granted a full pardon and released from prison he and his wife blanche lived with bonnie clyde and jones in a temporary hideout at 3347 and a half Oak Ridge Drive in Joplin, Missouri. According to family sources, Buck and Blanche were there to visit, and they attempted to persuade Clyde to surrender to law enforcement. But, alas, that did not happen. The group ran alcohol-fueled card games late into the night in the quiet neighborhood. Blanche recalled they bought a case of beer a day. And the men came and went noisily at all hours, and Clyde even accidentally fired a VAR in the apartment while cleaning it. <laughs> oh, oh my! Oh, forgot forgot around in the chamber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, forgot to check it. Uh huh. Now nobody ever reported anything to law enforcement. However. So. Well, back then, especially, you, you hear one round go off, and then. You just, oh, it's just an. They think, oh, that's just an accident, you know, or a car backfire, right? Not necessarily, and then and then no one, you know, no one reports being shot, you know. Mm-hmm. So, not not like it is today. No. Now, police did suspect that there were bootleggers living at that address. The Barrow brothers and Jones opened fire killing Detective Henry L. McGinnis outright, and they also wounded, fatally wounded Constable J.W. Harriman, and Bonnie Parker opened fire with a BAR as the others fled, which forced a a Highway Patrol Sergeant G.B. Collar to duck behind a large oak tree. The 30 caliber caliber bullets from the BAR struck the tree and forced wood splinters into the sergeant's face. Parker got into the car with the others, and they pulled Blanche into the car from the street. The surviving officers later testified they had fired only 14 rounds in the conflict. One of the bullets did hit Jones on his side. One struck Clyde, but was deflected by a suit coat button. And another one grazed Buck after ricocheting off a wall. So this was another shootout they had with law enforcement. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the group, while they did escape, they left behind most of their possessions. And this was uh, Buck's three-week-old parole papers. (laughs) Didn't waste any time. No. (laughs) Uh, A handwritten poem by Bonnie. 
a large arsenal of weapons. So most of the weapons that they had stolen already or acquired or bought were left behind during this time. Okay. And they also left a camera with several rolls of undeveloped film. Police developed the film at the Joplin Globe, and the roll of film revealed photos of, of Bonnie and Clyde and Jones posing and pointing weapons at one another. The Globe sent the poem and the photos out over the newswire, including the photo of Bonnie Parker clenching a cigar in her teeth and a pistol in her hand. And from this moment on, the Barrow Gang became front page news throughout America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that, and there's that sensationalism we were talking about. Yes. Yeah, that's, I mean, that really sold newspapers. It really did. Yeah. It really did. This wasn't a radio show. This was this was the real deal. And people wanted to, people wanted to read about it. And people wanted to see those pictures for sure. Yes, they did. Now, at this point, the group went from Texas to Minnesota for the next three months. They kidnapped Dillard. Dillard Darby and Sophia Stone in Ruston, Louisiana, in the course of stealing Darby's car. And this was one of several events between 1932 and 1934 in which they kidnapped police officers or robbery victims. Now, they usually released their hostages, but they would do it far from home. But sometimes they would give them money to help them return. Isn't that nice? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think they were trying to, it's, uh, it's like an old, old world ancient tactic. It's, it's similar to the tactic of leaving a few people alive to, to tell your tale. Oh, like natural born killers. Yeah. 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 So they wanted, they, they wanted people to talk about them. They did. They enjoyed the sensationalism. Well, or did they? Because while the photos entertained the public, the gang was desperate and upset. Um, the, this is an account by Blanche, okay? Because mm -hmm. she did write a memoir while imprisoned in the late 1930s, mm -hmm. okay? Um, because of their notoriety, their daily lives were difficult. They were trying to avoid being captured, right? So they couldn't go into restaurants. They couldn't check into motels. Um, they had to resort to cooking by campfire. And they bathed in cold streams. And they often slept in the car. And five people sleeping in the car is no fun. This led to a lot of arguing. <laughs> okay. Because you're in close proximity. You can't get a break from these people. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the public might have might have loved it. But the gang, eh, maybe not. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we will be back after this quick break. So there was one day when, on June the 10th, when Clyde Barrow failed to see warning signs at a bridge under construction. Uh, Jones and Parker were also in the car and they were near Wellington, Texas. The car flipped into a ravine, and sources disagree on whether there was a gasoline fire or if Bonnie Parker was doused with acid from the car's battery under the floorboards, but either way, she sustained third-degree burns up her right leg. Uh, they were so severe that the muscles contracted and caused the leg to draw up. 
Uh, she was burned so badly that the gang thought that she would die. Uh, the hide on her right leg was completely gone from her hip to her ankle, and they could see the bone in some places. It's pretty wow. vi- pretty vicious injury that she had sustained. Uh, she could hardly walk. Uh, she either hopped or she was carried. And that it, they immediately, initially, they got help from a nearby farm, by, by, from a nearby family farm. Then they kidnapped a Collinsworth County Sheriff named George Corey and City Marshal Paul Hardy and left the two of them handcuffed uh, to a bar. And they led, sorry, they left the two of them handcuffed to a tree outside of Eric, Oklahoma. The three then rendezvoused, rendezvous, rendezvous? How do you say that? Rendezvous? Rendezvous. Okay, rendezvous. Yeah, rendezvous. Thank you. With Buck and Blanche and hid in a tourist court near Fort Smith, Arkansas. They nursed Parker's burns as best they could. And Buck and Jones bungled a robbery and murdered a town marshal named Henry D. Humphrey in Alma, Arkansas. And of course, this meant that the criminals had to flee again, despite despite Bonnie Parker's severe injuries. In July of 1933, the gang went into the Red Cross Tourist Court south of Platte City, Missouri. The rental had two brick cabins joined by garages, and, and the gang rented both. Near the Tourist Court was the Red Crown Tavern, a popular restaurant amongst Missouri Highway Patrolmen. Blanche registered the party as three guests, but the owner, Neil Hauser, could see five people getting out of the car. And he noticed that the driver backed into the garage for a quick getaway. And Blanche paid for their cabins with coins rather than dollar bills. And she did the same thing later when she noticeably bought five dinners and five beers. The next day, Hauser noticed that his guests had taped newspapers over the windows of their cabin. And again, Blanche, who was apparently the person getting the meals and the beers, mm-hmm. was still paying with coins and she was buying five of each. Okay. So mm-hmm. they weren't really being very discreet here right. at all. Okay. And as a matter of fact, Blanche's outfit of job for riding breeches, which, you know, pants. Okay was so unusual that eyewitnesses still remembered them 40 years later. Yeah, jod purse back then were typical of uh, European military uniforms, especially right. office, but namely officers. Right, but it's also yeah. a woman wearing pants in this era was oh, yeah, so that, unusual. That's true, right? and, 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 and military style, European military-style trousers at that. Yeah. Right, right. So, after, so all of this activity, okay, caused Neil Hauser to contact Captain William Baxter of the Highway Patrol about this group. And at this point, Barrow and Jones went into town to purchase bandages, crackers, cheese, and atropine sulfate, which is a, a drug, to treat Bonnie's leg. Yeah. Okay, the druggist contacted Sheriff Holt Coffey, who put the cabins under surveillance. Now, law enforcement in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas 
had sent out an alert to watch for people seeking, you know, drugs for injuries. Yeah. Okay. Now, at this point, the sheriff contacted Captain Baxter, who called for reinforcements from Kansas City, and they included an armored car. Sheriff Coffey led a group of officers towards the cabins at 11 p.m., and they were armed with Thompson submachine guns. And wouldn't you know it, another gunfight ensued. The 45 caliber Thompsons were no match for Barrow's 30 caliber BAR, and this is the one that you mentioned earlier, Brian, that was stolen from a National Guard armory uh, at Enid, Oklahoma. The gang escaped when a bullet short-circuited the horn on the armored car, and the police officers mistook it for a ceasefire signal, and they did not retru- they, they, they did not pursue the retreating vehicle. Mm. Oh, yeah, Mis- miscommunication can mess things up in a tactical situation, or, you know, fa- failure to communicate. Just keep in mind, you know, the, the Thompson submachine gun, it... Uh, it fires, you know, a forty-five caliber pistol bullet, which is actually at a uh, at a uh, a slow velocity. Like you know, it's like under nine hundred feet per second. You know, coming out of like an eleven-inch barrel, right. submachine gun, up against these thirty-aught six, you know, deer-killing rifle rounds, right from the BAR, which. You know, at the time, the United States military for the service rifles, as well as the the uh, you know machine squad automatic weapons like a BAR machine guns, it was all oriented towards strictly killing, not wounding the enemy. That was before the United States military decided to shrink the size of their ammunition to smaller rounds of ammo, in favor of having more rounds of ammo and the ability to maim and to maim and wound versus you know, pure killing power. You know? Right, right. Well, speaking of maiming and wounding, even though they had invaded law enforcement once again, Buck had been wounded by a bullet that blasted a large hole in the bone of his forehead and exposed his brain. And Blanche was nearly blinded in both eyes by glass fragments. Yeah, one of the forgotten elements of, of a firefight and warfare is, is essentially, yes, shrapnel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Secondary fragments caused by, let's say, you know, explosive blasts or even gunfire. Right. Which yeah. are every bit as capable of wounding you. Yes. As a bullet. And it was at this point that the Barrow Gang camped at, a, at an abandoned amusement park near Dexter, Iowa on July the 24th. Buck was sometimes semi-conscious and he even talked and ate, but his massive head wound and loss of blood were so severe that Barrow and Jones dug, dug a grave for him, even though he didn't die yet. Okay, but they were, they were worried that he would die. Now, local residents noticed them and reported the activity to law enforcement, and law enforcement determined that they were the Barrow gang. Local police officers and approximately 100 spectators surrounded the group, and the Barrow gang came under fire. Barrow, Parker, and Jones escaped on foot. Buck was shot in the back, and he and Blanche were captured by the officers. Buck did die of his head wound and pneumonia, 
after surgery five days later at King's Daughters Hospital in Perry, Iowa. Well, dead or in jail. Mm-hmm. That's that <laughs> the story of many of a violent the story of any violent criminal. That that that's where it goes. You 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 de- you end up dead or in jail. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just the same, you know, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Right. Or my favorite, fuck around and find out. <laughs> now for the next six weeks, the remaining perpetrators range far afield from their usual area era excuse me. From their usual area of operations, west to Colorado, north to Minnesota, southeast to Mississippi. Yet, they continued to commit armed robberies. They restocked their arsenal when Barrow and Jones robbed robbed an armory at Platteville, Illinois on August the 20th, and they acquired three BARs, handguns, and a large quantity of ammunition. By early September, the gang risked a run to Dallas to see their families for the first time in four months. Jones parted company with them and went to Houston, where his mother had moved. And that's where he was arrested without incident. Oh, yeah, he had tidbit, another tidbit on the, uh, the, the Browning-designed BAR, which is also manufactured by Colt. Uh, keep, keep in mind, uh, later, later on in World War II, uh, the BAR would help the United States Marine Corps beat the Japanese forces in the Pacific. Ah, okay. But yeah, that was a, I mean, short of the, uh, you know, short of the 50 caliber and Browning 30 caliber belt fit machine guns. Yeah, the BARs were pretty serious firepower. Mm. So for those of you keeping score at home, this was uh, Buck Buck was dead, Blanche was arrested, and Jones was also arrested, which pretty much just left Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Yep, the ones you mainly hear about. The ones that you mainly hear about. Because they were the last one standing. Well... More specifically sitting. <laughs> but we'll get to that in a bit. Well, through the autumn, Clyde Barrow committed several several more robberies with some local accomplices. Yeah. Okay. Now keep in mind that th- this was their job. This is how they raised that they raised they earned <laughs> their they earned their money just robbing people, you know, robbing institutions. Yes. Yes. And Bonnie Bonnie's injuries were tended to by both his family and her family. So she was essentially on bed rest and being hidden away in the family home. Okay. Yeah. Now she is on light duty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 yeah. Like. Light- what light duty don't uh don't don't lift a weapon over five pounds. <laughs> <laughs> On November twenty second, they narrowly evaded arrest yet again while trying to meet with family members near Sowers, Texas. Dallas Sheriff Smoot Schmid, Deputy Bob Alkern, and Deputy Ted Hinton lay in wait nearby. As Barrow drove up, he sensed a trap and drove past his family's car, at which point Schmid and his deputy stood up and opened fire with machine guns and a BAR. The family members in the crossfire were not hit, but a BAR bullet passed through the car, striking the legs of both Barrow and Parker, who again escaped later that night. Yeah, very likely just passed through muscle tissue. 
Yeah. That, that, that happens sometimes with, with rifle bullets. On November 28th, a Dallas grand jury delivered a murder indictment against Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow for the killing in January that year, nearly 10 months earlier, of Tarrant County Deputy Malcolm Davis, and this would be Bonnie's Parker first warrant for murder. On January the 16th, 1934, Clyde Barrow orchestrated the escape of inmates in the Eastern Breakout. The brazen raid generated negative publicity for Texas, and Barrow seemed to have achieved what historian Phillips suggested was his overriding goal, revenge on the Texas Department of Corrections. During the raid, one of the gang members, Joe, Joe Palmer, shot Major Joe Croson, who died a few days later in the hospital, and this attack attracted the full power of, of the Texas and federal government, I'm sorry, the full power of Texas law enforcement and federal governments to the manhunt for Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. So this is their big break. Mm-hmm. Police, Prison Chief Lee Simmons reportedly promised him that all persons involved in the breakout would be hunted down and killed. All of them eventually were, except for one inmate who preserved his life by turning on the gang, and he helped set up the ambush of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Bonnie Parker. And that person's name uh, was Henry Methvin. The Texas Department of Corrections contacted former Texas Ranger Captain Frank Hammer, and persuaded him to hunt down the Barrow gang. He was retired, but his commission had not expired. He accepted the assignment as a Texas Highway Patrol officer, secondarily assigned to the prison system as a special investigator, and he was given the specific task of taking down the Barrow gang. And we're going to stop here for a quick break. By May of 1934, Clyde Barrow had 16 warrants for multiple counts of robbery, auto theft, theft, escape, assault, and murder in four states. Hammer, who had begun tracking the gang on February the 12th, led the law enforcement posse. He studied the gang's movements and found that they swung in a circle, skirting the edges of five Midwestern states, which exploited the state line rule. And this rule prevented officers from pursuing a fugitive into another jurisdiction. And Barrow was consistent in his movements. And Hammer noticed that the gang's travels centered on family visits. And they were due to see gang member Henry Methvin's family in Louisiana. Unbeknownst to Hammer, Clyde Barrow had designated that particular residence as a rendezvous in case the the gang were separated. Hammer's posse was composed of six men, uh, Texas officers Hammer, Hinton, Alkern, and B.M. Maney Galt, and Louisiana officers Henderson Jordan and Prentice Morrell, I'm sorry, Prentice Morrell Oakley. On May the 21st, the four law enforcement officers from Texas were in Shreveport, and this is when they found out that Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker were planning to visit Bienville Parish that evening. The full posse set up an ambush along Louisiana State Highway 154 Mm -hmm. south of Gibsland towards Sales. Hinton recounted that the lawmen were in place by 9 p.m. and waited through the whole of the next day, May 22nd, with no sign of the perpetrators. That's typically what happens when you 
you know, when you set up an ambush as you wait and wait and wait, it's boring as all heck and nobody comes. <laughs> well, not in this case. Yeah. Uh, at approximately 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, the posse was still concealed in the bushes and they were almost ready to give up when they heard a vehicle approaching at high speed. And this vehicle was proven to be the Ford V8 driven by Clyde Barrow. The six lawmen opened fire while the vehicle was still moving. Oakley fired first, and this was possibly before he had any official order to do so. Barrow was shot in the head, and he died instantly from Oakley's first shot. And it was reported they heard Bonnie Parker scream. The officers fired about 130 rounds, emptying each of their weapons into the car. And the two, I mean, I mean, the two had survived several bullet wounds in the past. But on this day, any one of these wounds could have been the cause of their deaths. Oh, especially the, the first one, considering I believe that was a Remington Model 8, which was a 30 6 mm-hmm. rifle. <laughs> 30 6 I mean, that's a, yeah, that's a deer killer. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And you won't be surprised to learn this, Brian, but those officers were deafened by all that gunfire. Uh, that doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, uh, the 30-06 is vastly more powerful than the uh, the 5.56 millimeter, you know, 223 diameter caliber uh, round that I used in my M16 in the Marine Corps. You know, a lot louder, a lot more powerful. Uh, I can remember it like after the third round, usually after the third round fired from my M16 without hearing protection, my ears were already popped. Right. You know, sounds like you got a tire blowout right next to your ear. So 30 odd 6 is much more intense. Mm-hmm. Much more intense than that. Yes. Now, in the vehicle, there was an arsenal of weapons discovered. This was stolen automatic rifles, sawed-off semi-automatic shotguns, assorted handguns, and several thousand rounds of ammunition along with 15 sets of license plates from various states. Yeah, there's like three 3,000 rounds of assorted ammunition. Oh, yeah. you have the facts right there. Huh? Yeah, plus, plus, get this, 120-round BAR magazines. Wow. Okay? Okay. Let's imagine just one of these magazines, 20 rounds of 30-06 BAR that you could fire in bursts, okay? Right. <laughs> Which, if you're practiced with it, you can get these short bursts very accurate. You know, very powerful here. See, so it was like a total of 16 firearms, three of these full auto, you know, BARs, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the configuration similar to the Colt Monitor, you know, with, right. the, sh- with the short barrel, okay? Um, 20, 20 gauge Remington 1100 semi-auto, okay, with, you know, barrel, barrel cut down for concealability, okay, mind you. Now, cutting the barrel on a shotgun just doesn't improve the ballistics. It just makes it concealable and handy, you know, easy to work corners with. That, that, was, that was Bonnie's favorite was the 20 gauge semi-auto Remington shotgun, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, a 10 gauge model 1901 lever action. You know, saw it off. Okay, keep on now. The lower the gauge, the more powerful. Ten gauge more powerful than twelve gauge. By the way, okay. Okay. Uh, a thirty-two caliber nineteen oh three Colt automatic pistol. Okay, now these were very popular for self-defense because they were semi-automatic and they were easy to shoot, and they were actually very reliable with the thirty-two caliber ammo. Previously popular in Europe. Okay, 
Uh, it was like later on, you have your Walter PPK in Europe in the 32 caliber, but this was the American uh, favorite here in 32, the Colt, 1903. Uh, the ubiquitous uh, for quite, for most of the 20th century, you know, Colt detective, six shot, 38 revolver. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, you know, the steel frame version of it, whereas like later on, Lee Harvey Oswald would get caught with uh, the Colt Cobra, which is the, the lightweight alloy frame version of it. Okay. Your uh, Colt 25 caliber, you know, mini pistol. Okay. Which could fit into a vest pocket, nicknamed vest pocket. Okay. Pistol. Uh, a, 19, a, a Colt 1909 45 caliber revolver. Okay. Saw service in World War One and World War Two, and uh, seven okay semi-automatic Colt M nineteen eleven forty five pistols. That was a lot of guns. seven of those. Okay, that's a lot of guns. So with with the handguns, you see a recurring theme. They loved Colt handguns from twenty five caliber all the way up to forty five. You know. Yeah. Okay. Well. Word of the deaths quickly got around, and a crowd gathered at the spot, and this crowd, well, one woman cut off bloody locks of Parker's hair and pieces from her dress and sold them as souvenirs. (laughs) They also caught a man trying to cut off uh, Clyde Barrow's trigger finger. (laughs) Okay. Now... Uh, other souvenirs such as shell casings, slivers of glass from the shattered car windows, bloody pieces of clothing, and the garments of from Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, somebody uh, tried to tried to cut off Clyde's left ear as well. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about just ugh. so with the pieces of clothing that kind of reminds me of like. It's like every sometimes like some packs of sports cards for like football cards. Mm-hmm. Every now and then they would be like the, these chase cards that would only appear one every few cases, and the card would have would actually have like a small piece of a, a tiny piece of a game worn jersey I from the player those. whose yeah. card it would be. I remember okay, that. yeah, you know. So do they still make those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. They they still they still do that. But of okay. course, this is. This is not as you know perverted as what we just uh, what was just mentioned. You know? That that's true because yeah. the player voluntarily gave it up. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. So the the Ford car with the dead body still inside was towed to the Conger Furniture Store and Funeral Parlor in downtown Arcadia, Louisiana. The embalming was done by was done in a small preparation room in the back of the furniture store since apparently at the time it was common for furniture stores and and undertakers to share the same space and the undertaker had a difficult time embalming the bodies because of the amount of bullet holes yeah speaking i mean speaking of bullet holes essentially it's like the the law enforcement who engaged them in this instance they essentially they fired off all of their rifle ammunition Mm -hmm. into the car then picked up, then they all picked up shotguns, fired off all of their shotgun ammunition into the car, and 
and then pulled pistols. Right. And uh, assaulted the vehicle with their pistols mm. afterwards. And so it was something like, what was it, 100 and, it's like 154 mm-hmm. bullet holes in the car or something like that. Now, the, now the, the population of this Louisiana town swelled from 2,000 to 12,000 within hours. Spectators arrived by train, horseback, buggy, and plane. Beer that normally sold for 15 cents in a, bo- in a bottle was a race of 25 cents, and sandwiches quickly sold out. <laughs> now, uh, Barrow specifically had been shot in the head by a 35 Remington Model 8, which I believe you, you did mention, right? Yeah. Yeah. And his father, Clyde Barrow's father, identified his son's body and then just wept in a rocking chair in the, in the furniture section, which... You know, it is still sad when you think about how he didn't want his son to end up like that. Yeah, I mean, it's still still your family. I mean, this is why families, you know, that visit there, visit people in jail. Because it's, you know, you don't, you may not love what your family member did breaking the law, but you still love them. So you visit them and you still, you don't stop caring about them just because they're living a life of crime. Right. You know. Right. So, more than 20,000 people attended Bonnie Parker's funeral. Yeah, that's uh, some of the people who romanticized the whole deal, apparently, were probably most of the people in attendance. Yes, and... That, that's that's that's, uh, that's state funeral level attendance. The largest floral tribute was sent by a group of Dallas City newsboys as the sudden end of Bonnie and Clyde sold 500,000 newspapers in Dallas alone. And that was their last chance of publicity. Yeah. Was covering the funeral and, and <laughs> sending flowers to the funeral. I mean, that, that's, kind of, that, that, that's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so you definitely know that the the, some the journalists who covered them were, who covered them their activities romanticized them as well yes and Bonnie Parker was buried initially in the fish trap cemetery although in 1945 her body was moved to the new Crown Hill cemetery in Dallas thousands, where she's from right yes where she's from yeah thousands of people gathered outside both Dallas funeral homes hoping for a chance to view the bodies. Clyde Barrow's private funeral was held at sunset on May the 25th, and he was buried in Western Heights Cemetery in Dallas next to his brother Marvin. The Barrow brothers share a single granite marker with their names on it and an epitaph selected by Clyde, which is gone but not forgotten. And indeed, we still have not forgotten Bonnie and Clyde. No, we sure hadn't. And one of the... uh, this Dallas deputy sheriff who was involved in the ambush, you know, was brought along by law enforcement because he, uh, he didn't forget them. He, in fact, he grew up Mm -hmm. around, around Clyde and he had known Bonnie from when she worked as a waitress at a restaurant as a teenager. Right. Yeah. So he certainly didn't forget them. And he was, uh, Remember, during the confrontation, his primary firearm was a Colt was a Colt Monitor variation of the BAR. Right. 
borrowed from the National Guard. Borrowed, not stolen from the National Guard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. the irony there, National Guard BARs on both sides of this firefight. Yes. Now, the the vehicle that they were killed in is still on display today. It's in the, the, the Prim Casino in Prim, Nevada. Okay. And as a point of interest, uh, Clyde Barrow did write a letter to Henry Ford expressing his admiration for the V8 and said that he, it was a great car for escaping law enforcement in. Yeah. And you would, now the V8 engine was also great for stopping pistol bullets and shotgun pellets or slugs as well. And you know, if, uh, if Colonel Samuel Colt, had been still around, not a real colonel. That was just you know, the title he gave himself. Uh, he would have probably written a letter to Samuel Colt as well, <laughs> thanking him for inventing the uh, the forty five. Yeah, the forty five caliber. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, what are your final thoughts, babe? So, something very intriguing, and of course. Uh, violent criminals who have crime sprees like this are, of course, keep in mind they're actually rare, okay, for these crime sprees to go on that long or for them to do it, as much as they did the number of shootouts they had with law enforcement, the number of successful armed robberies and, and burglaries they undertook. Uh, and there, it's fascinating from several aspects. We just touched upon two of the aspects, like, like the the subject of firearms. You know, mm -hmm. part of their they they left their mark on firearms history. Okay, Louisiana history, Texas Louisiana history. history, Texas history, criminal history. Yeah, the history of Ford vehicles. <laughs> yeah, the history of Ford vehicles. Yeah, um, and it's uh. It, it, it's it's a story that will be told for the duration of mankind on this planet. Uh, but it ends the same way as all other, pretty much all other criminal histories. You know, they, they spent time in jail and they uh, they ended up dead. They ended up dead. Yeah. They they did not have, and I would imagine this was not a nice life that they had together either. Yeah, you know, this was not this was not a nice quiet life that they had. They didn't have the pleasures of making a home together. They didn't ha they weren't really able to go out to eat. They weren't able to go out on dates. You know, it, it was a very rough lifestyle they led that was similar to front to a frontier lifestyle. Yes, and. Their lifestyle was actually more violent than the Western frontier. Yeah. You know, I mean, the level, it's gunfighters in the Wild West are, well, no one was a gunfighter by profession. Okay. You know, it's like you, you get into one shootout in the Wild West and you're considered a gunfighter. Okay. But they, they got involved in a lot more than and the gunfighters of the West did. And, and those weapons that they used were a lot more deadly than the guns from the Wild West, too. I mean, you didn't have uh, Browning automatic rifles. Right? Back then, typically, the, 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 the king of, a, of any Wild West shootout would be 
Uh, the cult peacemaker. Well, as far as handguns go, yes. Okay. You know, God uh, invent, God made man, Samuel Colt made man equal. Okay. Right. You know, uh, you know 45 long colts, a very, very potent uh, pistol round even to this day. Uh, but, you know, your Winchester lever action rifles. Right. You could say were the assault rifles of the West. Mm. You know, as these were powerful you know, 30, 30 caliber, you know, once again, a deer caliber. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the power of a 30, 30 is within the ballpark of a 30 off six, not as powerful though, but, uh, you know, strong enough to, uh, you take someone down quickly. Like this instance where that this, this marshal served this warrant on this guy and four of his cousins, you know, got involved and despite the fact that they all got their shots off first, this marshal took down all five of them with one well-aimed shot each from a Winchester lever action rifle. Right. <laughs> he made his shots count. Right. Well, my final thoughts are essentially, um, if you are going to date a bad boy, don't date a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> don't date a bad boy I know that they look cute I know that they're attractive and they'll probably show you things you've never seen before but it's probably not going to end well yeah the that that that's going to be it's going to end up it's going to end like you're lighting a short fuse and boom if, yes it's going to end in a boom and if you do date a bad boy don't do it for long no don't, don't get addicted to the bad leave boy. that at high school yeah leave that yeah, or even college. Yeah. Or your first couple of years of college. And, you know, my advice, especially to young women out there who might be listening to this, focus on yourself. Focus on yourself. You know, do what you want to do because you want to do it. Not because you got caught up in something bad because of somebody else. Yes, empower yourself. Yes, whatever that means to you, unless it means breaking the law, don't do that. Right? Yes. All right, so that is going to finish it for us here today, dear listeners. We thank you so much for tuning in and for spending some time with us. We know that this was a, a bit of a longer episode, but we are trying to do longer episodes as long as, as, long as we can do long episodes for uh-huh and, <laughs> and then on a bad joke it's fine yeah and in our next episode which will be again on march the 2nd we're going to be talking about another colorful politician from our state's history we're going to be talking about huey p long and his murder ah oh, yes mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yes so until then dear listeners be safe be kind remember that we're all human beings and don't park next to vans if it's dark, it's dangerous, and it does not feel safe. Don't be there in the first place, especially during Mardi Gras. Especially during Mardi yeah. Gras, yeah. And if you are questioned by law enforcement in an official capacity, and you are not the witness or the victim of a crime, be sure to lawyer up. And also, I want to add, uh, don't point guns at people uh, as a joke and 
And on top of that, don't do it and photograph yourselves doing it. That's very true. Just like like Bonnie and Clyde did. They photographed themselves doing it as a joke. Yeah, you could you could say that was their uh their early version of like YouTube You're or right. TikTok <laughs> or TikTok stupidity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye goodbye. Good night. Happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. Eat some king cake. Be good. <laughs>